If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Strong World podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I am joined by Dr. Jacob H. Templar. Uh, so some of you may know Jacob. Um, he is part of the Strength Guys, who are kind of a big prolific online coaching company within our sort of little niche. Um, so he's working with them and he is also a doctor of physical therapy and has been putting out some really, really cool stuff over on his uh, Instagram, which is the Strength in evidence physio uh, and i think it's for me was quite refreshing to see some of the content that jacob was putting out so i wanted to drag him on the show and dig into his brain uh, but jacob before i continue i know uh, you're a father is there anything else uh, you want the listeners to know about you um yeah i'm a dad i am awake early my hopefully my daughter sleeps through this she normally does um Obviously, I'm married. My wife's a registered nurse. I work in uh, Rochester, New York. I'm a physical therapist at a small practice called Physical Therapy Services of Rochester. Um, so I not only get to work with strength athletes, but I work with the general population anyways, like uh, average what most physios would see anyways. And in terms of your own background, what kind of got you into physio and what's your uh, your sporting background. I assume you train in things. What are your kind of goals as well? I always find that interesting. Yeah. So I started in American football playing, uh, I was an offensive lineman. It was fairly like overweight and stuff in high school. So I played offensive line, defensive line. Um, I started with that, got into gym training because that's kind of what led me into being like a good player for my high school. Um, so I was like started when I was like 14 or 15, something like that. Um, just doing whatever the coaches were going to have us do in the gym. And then like what the older players did. And then um, from there, I went to college, played for a year, division three, just kind of like, you know, practice more than anything. And um, after that, I played rugby for a little bit and then got more into the gym from there. Um, going through school and then figuring out stuff, learning from like online, going on bodybuilding.com, finding people like 3DMJ and Lane Norton and different people like that. And actually learning more about that. And now I'm actually um, two of our coaches. I work with uh, Kedrick and Alfred. Um, For a little while we were recovering from me dieting down from, I was like 230 pounds to 200 Um, and now we're starting to build up my lifts again. So we're starting to get back up there with my squat and deadlift and everything. Awesome. Yeah. Well, 30 pounds is no joke. So that's a, that's a hefty loss. A good job. (laughs) I think it's always helpful. Um, especially for physios, I find sometimes they're not as specific to, for like physique sports and people listen to this. There's a lot of people who they see a physio and maybe they are just focused on like gem pop and they don't really train themselves. And so it can be really difficult to get the kind of really specific help that they need. Whereas you obviously train, so you get it and you kind of understand the injuries that maybe a trainee would pick up. Yeah. And that's actually like a frustrating part of the profession is that like so many people actually like underload patients, even like the general population. In terms of underload, is that kind of like they don't appreciate how much they know about their individual situation or? Um, just in general, like there's this habitual, like not like just giving people enough weight to actually do what they need, like the acquire the adaptation we're okay. seeking. Cause there's always this perception that people are not that they're more, it's kind of like they're more frail and in, in, in general, like physios are afraid to, um, 
be a little bit more aggressive and like, oh, I'm going to actually have you do something that's going to actually develop a strength adaptation versus they, I think Adam Meekins, who's another, he's a physio in the UK, did a post on this. He's like, are you just having people do like general exercise or are you actually having them do a strengthening exercise? Yeah, I, I understand that. It's like um, doing yoga and Pilates and thing, and not really going probably past that. Whereas if we need, like you said, that adaptation, we've got to cause a stress to improve things. And kind of that's the beauty of resistance training where it kind of improves um, like the strength of our bones and everything. So later in life, we're not going to be as fragile. Whereas, yeah, from the sounds of things, it sounds like a lot of physios potentially make people purposefully fragile later down the line or that ends up being the case. Yeah. So, yeah, they either do it from not thinking about it or uh, things they say or things like that. Yeah, kind of the un scaremongering, maybe unnecessarily or not even realizing that's what they've kind of ended up doing. Yeah. <laughs> Something I wanted to touch on was actually a couple of your latest posts because they're very relevant. Obviously, Instagram is generally relevant uh, to the yeah. like here and now, and there's a lot of. And as we get deeper into like our understanding of things and as technology improves, we're seeing kind of different techniques come out. Um, and as ever, humans want a quick fix. Like we wanted to be like, shredded yesterday. We also want to be recovered yesterday. So um, you kind of did a really interesting post and in how a lot of these techniques end up becoming band-aids and physios maybe unnecessarily rely on them and also trainees maybe get bought into them and they're not necessarily doing as much as we hope. So I don't know if you would like to maybe give some examples of those, what maybe when you would use them, when you wouldn't use them, and what maybe is actually the solution rather than kind of, yeah, using a Band-Aid, like whatever tools you're maybe going to mention. Yeah, I think the biggest ones that I posted about, let me double check. I think it was like dry needling, uh, which could also be considered like acupuncture, um, KT tape, which is like the colorful tape we see on like a lot of Olympic athletes now, Theraguns, hot packs, even like foam rolling to a degree. Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple things that you only see in like a physio clinic. So like an ultrasound or like a low level laser. Um, the ultrasound that we use is different from like the ones that you think of when like you're going to go get like a look at a baby or things like yeah. that because they don't generate a picture. It generates heat. Okay. Um, and some, and then like cupping. Uh, so some of these things, it's not like there are times and places where you could potentially use them. It's just that they're way over utilized. Okay. Um, it's different. Like some people argue about like creating an alliance with a patient or somebody that's in your clinic. Um, but the problem is, is that a lot of people use it as like a catch all, like they treat everybody with this. It's not like they selectively use it and like select appropriately, maybe based on some of the studies that you look at, like, you know, like we talk about, uh, evidence-based fitness. I know is a big, like people talk about it being a buzz term, but same with medicine. It's like people argue about like, well, you can't measure everything with science, but the problem is, is like, if you also don't use objective science, that's where we get to where we are with like some surgeries, like where, that surgery is no better than a placebo and people are being convinced to continue to have this intervention. That's kind of wasting their time and their money um, for the sake of saying, well, it's got, I got to get them to buy in. Well, did you need to get the person to buy in doing this passive intervention because you're invested in that type of treatment or is it because they actually wanted it and you needed it? Yeah, I think, and you mentioned there the word placebo mm -hmm. and you kind of talked about how um, choosing a placebo carefully is also important to allow for long-term improvement that doesn't lead to future nocebo. And you also mm -hmm. said a term that I'd never heard before and I think it was, I actually don't know how to say the word. It begins with an I-A-T-R-O-G-genic effects. Oh, iatrogenic. Yeah, so I'd love you to, yeah, talk about where as a physio, you might use one of these tools um, or maybe even as a consumer where think some of these tools you can have at home. So like you said, the foam roller or the Theragun, is there application for those for a consumer and how does the physio go about like using them in the right way so you don't fall into the kind of 
nocebo-ing yourself or the isogenic um, and what that maybe means as well would be interesting. So iatrogenic is like relating to an illness that's caused by a medical like person treating you either through the treatment or the examination. So a lot of big ones now we see are like um, people, like everyone that will go get an x-ray done, like it's going to show something on the x-ray. And then that act of having that exam done or like a big one that most people consider is like, do you have a lot of chiropractors in the UK? Yeah. So like we have a lot of them over here and they all start their own practice. And I have friends that are chiropractors that get upset by other chiropractors because they'll do like an x-ray on somebody or like an examination and they'll go, oh, you see this and that and this, you have all these things wrong. So I need to, you need to buy this package for me to adjust you this many times per week for this many weeks or things like that when it's maybe not true and founded in actual like, um, you know, evidence and science. They're just kind of making something up to get you to buy into this package. So even if you don't stop showing up, they're still, you know, making out in the long term from you, you know, pre-purchasing this package. Um, And nocebic is, so it's the opposite of placebo where you take something that's supposed to be inert um, and assign. So a lot of times we see it, it's like you assign specific meaning to it. And then that's where it causes a negative effect. Um, Some of these things can be helpful for the general population because, I mean, there is some evidence that like massage and foam rolling, like in a specific window after a workout can be helpful for um, decreasing delayed onset muscle soreness and things like that. But in general, it may not like, it's not going to speed up the time that it takes your muscle to recover um, or even your nervous system. It, it may help you um, subjectively, which is a, another thing that it subjectively we can see though that like, like perception of RPE and things like that, it, it does play some role into, and there's some actual science that ties it into that long-term like my sessional RPEs and stuff like that changes and that can be a predictor of recovery. Um, so there is maybe a small way to like link it to objective recovery. Um, at least in some of the science that I've said, I'm, you know, um, and other people have talked about like um, Eric Helms, I know has done some talk of and cover some of the science and um, as well as Austin Baraki from uh, Barbell Medicine. He's talked about sessional RPE and how it relates to um, overall like chronic fatigue. And, and I'm pretty sure the sports physio um, in Australia, Tim Gabbett, has also talked about it, but more relating to like soccer and or right. football and everywhere else except for America and uh, other sports like that. So is that where you could use a foam roller or say the Theragun and it could reduce your perception of fatigue as like a, a trainee? Yeah. Like, you know, I, the, my thought is that like nowadays foam rollers are a better, like there's a lower barrier to entry and you're not investing like $600. And like, I think the name brand um, massage gun, like the first one is like around $600. Wow. And there's even, I mean, you can go buy a kit now for your like um, jigsaw and put it on that. <laughs> Amazing. And and it'll cost you like you have this tool already and it'll cost you maybe I think it's like $30 to buy the kit. So as a maybe as physique competitor, would the application be, I guess you probably would say foam roller over say a Theragun or something because of the, the price difference. And I don't know if the Theragun's giving us anything a foam roller doesn't. And then using that as like a, a post-workout treatment to heighten your subjective recovery, but it's not actually having any physiological improvements to our actual recovery. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, the only stuff that I've seen is it may help with a delayed onset muscle soreness. I think I'm, you know, if yeah. I just did a, a huge leg workout, all my, you know, quad muscle isn't going to recover and turn over protein faster because I massaged it. And is that, I, I often hear, because I know like cold treatments and like heat treatments, 
they can help us heighten recovery between kind of an overloading session but at the cost of maybe adaptations is that the same with like foam rolling or the, the theragun would that kind of reduce any adaptations because you're kind of reducing like a stressor that we maybe want to heal itself um not that i'm aware of because a lot of the soreness from delayed on set muscle soreness is like through a number of different mechanisms that's still like kind of being more widely understood um where it's like a combination of like people used to think it was lactic acid but we know that's not true anymore so there's like different components with how the nervous system's behaving and things like that that are leading to um these changes and the one of the big things is where people like crush themselves with a workout i would say like if they're doing that well obviously like my first thing would be to do is probably if we can change that and make it so your workouts later in the week are not affected by this one workout obviously that would be the the best way to handle it but then if 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 we can't get somebody to do that at least maybe we can get them to foam roll to try and mitigate that right yeah that makes a lot of sense i guess like uh, and i know quinn hennock when i i did a few sessions with him kind of skype calls and a big factor that he talks about is just manipulating your volume you're probably doing too much in a particular area that's causing the problem i'd be interested to hear obviously you you may use some of these tools now and then but what as a physio when you practice on people what are you doing kind of i know you talked about how just actually listening to the individual can often go a long way yeah i mean so a lot of times when i'm in like my like brick and mortar clinic it's a lot of conversational like getting into like, okay, what are, what are your issues? What are your goals? Uh, what have you been told in the past? What other practitioners have you seen? And a lot of the people that I see, the majority of them are like, they've been to practitioners who maybe, um, because they can't find anything that they can cut out or medicate away, they just kind of end up brushing these people off. And really they, they just need you to listen to them to be able to say like, they've been heard, they've, gotten their um, concerns, their complaints, their goals like out to somebody and you don't just have your face in the computer the whole time because that's a lot of times what ends up happening with the increase in like, um, like those, there's a push for everyone to see more patients um, in less time and to, you know, have these bigger turnover rates because of you know, the way that insurances work over here and, and it's like a big other mess uh, that's a complex issue. But so these people get brushed off and there's a lot of practitioners that may not understand um, just because they don't have the training that we have as physios and maybe don't explore some of these other avenues because, you know, like a GP is not going to be always studying about like, oh, I need to learn this very in-depth complex um, specifics to pain or to a specific, you know, muscle injury or things like that. They're kind of worried about, you know, my patient with diabetes or high blood pressure, all these other health habits that are going to maybe kill them in much quicker period of time. Um, so sometimes I don't know if it's, I can't speak for them, but if they're kind of afraid to, um, spend that more time or because they don't understand that issue enough to give these patients the time they actually need to kind of help them start their recovery process. Um, but they really miss out on that. And then, I mean, my biggest approach, I use this uh, assessment method. It's called uh, mechanical diagnosis and therapies. Most, most people know it as McKenzie where it's based wow. off of, Yeah different repeated movements. So if I can find a repeated movement, it starts to develop better control for them. Like they can use this movement as kind of like an alleviator for a symptom that they're overly concerned with. Okay. That's a good strategy. And then from there, it's a lot of like, let's, you know, work on strength principles. Let's work on endurance, like different things like that. And it all depends on what somebody's coming in for. We just happen to have a very high, percentage of our patients that come in for uh, persistent pain issues like lower back issues or neck. Uh, another big population we serve specifically at my clinic is people that have migraines, headaches, 
Um, so there's a probably almost like half of our patients, I would say, are migraine and headache patients. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think it's when you were talking that through and then you brought up GPs, it's, it's very similar here in the UK. I've been to see my GP and quite often you don't feel listened to and you do feel rushed. And there's something just very therapeutic about having someone who seems like they really care and are listening to you. Um, you may get the same result and the same outcome, but one will feel like it's it just de-stresses you a hell of a lot versus the other. And I guess like it's a very complicated topic like pain and things, but headaches. I imagine a lot of that is psychological and just by actually listening to someone caring that can have a big and profound impact. Have you found that to be the case for yourself? Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. See you there. Yeah, I mean, to a degree, because it's just the fact that there you have this concern about this issue. And if, I mean, it gets a little bit into philosophy. If you've, if you've come to see a practitioner, well, now I've assumed this, this role of illness and I'm seeking help for it. Even if somebody cannot provide me with something that may like immediately affect my symptoms, I still want to be, you know, I want my complaint listened to. I want to know uh, kind of what's going on with the issue. Uh, what can this person actually do for me potentially? even if it's something that's not going to help immediately, like what it would be our game plans to see and make sure like, you know, specifically for me, like what, what am I going to do maybe to help this person? If we find that things don't help, what's our next step? Um, and then like sometimes some people want to know like how long it's going to take, you know, what's their, what's their cost investment, things like that. But once you've, and then I provided a lot of times reassurance, like, somebody comes in with shoulder pain and they've been told they have shoulder impingement. I don't know if that's a term you've heard of before, but most people know it. They're always, everybody's always concerned. Oh, did I hurt my rotator cuff? Like things like that. Well, it's like you can get into some of the complexities of that, but you don't always have to. And it's like, no, like your rotator cuff is fine. Like you haven't torn it. You're not going to need surgery, things like that. And then just by reassuring them, they're like, Oh, I feel so much better now because Mm -hmm. I know that that's not the problem. It reminds me of like uh, I've had clients who are struggling dieting and then you say, okay, we'll give you like a refeed day or we'll take a diet break right now. And then they report back saying, as soon as you told me that I was no longer hungry, it's kind of yeah. like you just calm them down. You just give them a solution. They're like, oh, actually there is maybe nothing as severely wrong as we first thought. And uh, something you've spoken about as well over on your social media was like posture and you mm-hmm. talked about kind of listening to people what they've heard and i think there's a lot of maybe cultural beliefs around posture and what good posture is and the kind of harm it's causing us i love to hear kind of what your what you see uh, is the misconception around posture and what the reality is in terms of what pain it's potentially causing or not causing yeah i mean i think that gets into the the culture of beliefs that like there's always this nowadays too like there's this my friends will send me like memes they find on like facebook and instagram because there's like this cultural ingrained thing of like oh when i get older like i'm supposed to hurt oh my toaster went off and i turned my head quick and that's why my neck hurts or like different things like that so i've been doing kind of like trying to come up with anti like posts for that and everybody that comes in they're like oh yeah i know i have like crappy posture i know i have this or that or the other thing that's crappy and i'm like but like, where did this belief come from? Like, what, why do you think that? And like, um, kind of unpacking because we're finding that long term now when we look at like things like <clears throat> there's been some big, big reviews recently. Like the, the most recent one was like 2017 or 18 on lower back pain as done by a journal in the UK called the Lancet. It's one of the oldest journals in existence, actually. Um, they did a worldwide kind of like effort to look at back into back pain and like what's so costly about it what are things that can help what are are our like kind of standard approaches should be and they're finding that in in science like when they actually study about posture there's not a really great link to certain postures to causing you to develop 
symptoms and even like ergonomic programs in of themselves, like having different changes in your posture, preventing the onset of symptoms. So we know it's like, it's not this one-to-one correlation where if you have this certain posture that it means you're going to develop pain because bodies are adaptable. Like um, my, one of my friends just did a interview with Greg Lehman and he, he had some very good things to say about it where it was like, he's like, I believe that biomechanics always matter, which I also agree with, but he goes, I believe that they matter for different reasons. So it's, it's because a lot of times performance in like, if we're thinking of hypertrophy, like I want to put a stress on a specific area because my goal is to maybe like make this muscle bigger or to develop strength in this particular position. But if you're consistently in a position, you also have to think of like, there's, you know, the, uh, the said principle and Wolf's law and things like that. Well, why all of a sudden do those principles not hold true just because I'm in a different position? Like theoretically, like that doesn't make sense physiologically. Like I, those tissues should still be adapting because I'm applying a specific stress over a certain period of time. Um, and there's some link to some of these changes that we may see because of, you know, changes in blood flow or whatever, but to our nervous system and to our body, that doesn't always matter. Like that's background noise. And it goes, I can kind of ignore that. That doesn't matter right now. Um, we don't need to worry about that because I'm able to adapt and overcome this stress versus there may be other times where you become sensitive to these positions and things like that. Well, now us changing the positions you're in or things like that, that matters quite a lot more because we're trying to desensitize this. And if I keep pushing too much into this, sometimes that only allows things to, to hang around longer. Um, Cause just like strength, like um, I think it's Mike to share that always says it's one, it's either him or, um, or um, what's his name, Gary, um, they're saying strength is a skill, you know, uh, I forget who says it, but it's the same thing with pain, like your body to your body, that's just another skill, a neurological adaptation. The more you're in pain and allow, not necessarily allow, but have these symptoms sometimes it's easier for your body to produce it because it goes hey this is a familiar pathway i know this so it's gonna be like oh that's easy to turn that on now i guess so do you think potentially people undervalue how adaptable the body is and they can't we almost think it's more fragile than it necessarily is and in fact don't give it enough credit is that kind of what you're saying in that regard yeah, is that like we generally have these perceptions that are continuously like perpetuated through our societal and cultural beliefs and uh, kind of things we learn from being children that like, oh, like, yeah, the body is meant to be protected and it's frail. But I mean, when you look at the history of humanity, like if you look at all the things we've been able to do, like that, that would kind of already it's in it of itself say the complete opposite true and actually one of these things uh that we hear quite a lot and i have certainly said myself um is kind of neutral spine and you recently did a post on that as well in terms of like how a lot of pts are cueing it and then actually it's been kind of even though we're perceiving it and viewing it and it seemed neutral that actually there is some flexion going on and obviously uh the kind of perceive uh, I guess the cultural belief is flexion of the the lower back in particular is incredibly dangerous and should be avoided at all costs. Uh, so I'd love, yeah, again, if you could talk around that point. Yeah. Cause it's an interesting concept because um, that was something that like I previously had bias on and things like that about like, you know, Oh, the flexion is, is yeah, bad. And like, if you do that, you're going to hurt like your discs and, and things like that, which, um, there's some evidence out there that says it can cause disc changes, but a lot of the studies aren't done in like live humans. They might be done in models or cadavers and things like that. So that's, that's harder to extrapolate that evidence towards like a living person that still has 
adaptability going on. Um, but this, this was in particular um, based off a thesis that was um, mentioned in, a, in an interview and then I asked for the paper and, and looked it up. I think the, the physio's name is Scotty Butcher. He's known as a strength Jedi on uh, Instagram. Right. It was one of his students who did their thesis in kinesiology and they, they took these markers of um, different um, positions of the spine during um, high bar, low bar squats, uh, a deadlift. I think they did a sumo. Um, I know they did like a hips high and hips low um, deadlift. And then they measured the amounts of flexion and like shearing forces at the joints of the spine. <clears throat> and what they found was that there was like, regardless of if to a trainer, like somebody who's trained and uh, in their case, it was like a strength coach and mm -hmm. people in kinesiology that when you appear that we're in a neutral position, your spine would still flex at the bottom positions of a squat and at a deadlift um, to a, a large degree, large enough degree. It was like 70% of maximal flexion of the spine. Oh, and wow. it was previously thought that, um, any amount over 30 to 35 degrees was like the like terminal flexion that would cause some type of disc injury. Um, the maximal flexion is like, it depends on which source you look at somewhere between 60 and like, I think 80 degrees. I should know cause I have a test tomorrow for yeah. orthopedic certification, but they, they used to think that that was going to cause injury. And then, the shearing forces were quite large too, larger than maybe before had been perceived to cause an injury. And it's like, okay, well, if that's occurring on a regular basis in this population, why doesn't every single person that squats or deadlifts have all these issues? So yeah, it's absolutely. like this continuation of like, okay, maybe flexion matters at times when people have specific things going on for them but it doesn't matter in the ways we used to think that it it did for everybody yeah and i guess in terms of being a personal trainer and i guess if you're coaching someone i'm not sure if you coach people but if you were coaching someone do we still coach them neutral spine and what what is how do we coach that positioning of the back now what is deemed as kind of safe and like what are you deeming as I guess when we visually see flexion, is that when we're at the point where, we, yeah, we're really like that's far, like, that is too far now, or do we not actually know? Um, well, I think that in general, you're going to think of is the idea is you always have to have something to go off of because you're going to need a framework because some framework is better than none. Like you can't just like the example I use for somebody, I was like, you can't just all of a sudden like take somebody from, I don't know, say like, just think of somewhere where they maybe don't even know where like basketball is or like football or something. And all of a sudden you put them on a, a pitch or a court and you're like, okay, here's some balls and those are goals and go ahead and play the sport. Like it's not going to work out well. So you have to give some kind of idea in like your trainees, your patients, your things like that. They, they kind of want that framework too, at mm -hmm. least a little bit. Um, because they're un maybe unsure, like you may have somebody that's not really done a lot of these movements before. <clears throat> so you have to instill some confidence there, but also um, there's going to be a point at which like just the general, the way the physics work is going to be better for that person. So it's a matter of like finding that position. I think we're less worried about the, that causing them injury more of like, this is going to help the performance. And again, put the stress where I'm intending Brilliant. for the stress to go to cause this specific adaptation or then I'm worried about, okay, you're going to get hurt if you're not in that position. Um, Cause we can still see like, you know, uh, variability in your training form. Like you may never have a perfect technique. I mean, that, that in and of itself could be helpful to, prevent injury because I know even like if we look at weight lift, like Olympic lifters um, some of them purposely train knee valgus because right. that's a often a position they are going to get into when they're doing maximal lifting they need to be able to get out of that position to save not they're maybe not even worried about getting hurt there they're worried about saving the lift so that they can complete the lift to meet standards I guess as a 
a lot of the people listening to this, some of them will be powerlifters probably. Uh, so I guess actually what you're talking about there in terms of getting into positions that maybe they want to be strong in so they don't cause injury when they are lifting maximally is a, is a good preventative. I guess for yeah. maybe someone training for hypertrophy, like you talked about, technique is important to keep tension on the muscles where we want it to be. So I guess for them, maybe they always want to try and work with as good as perfect a technique as possible so we are training the musculature because we're not looking for that maximal performance and we shouldn't necessarily be getting into these kind of positions would you is that something that you think would be applicable to the audience yeah i mean like yeah that's what you're thinking about is like what is going to help me the best on meat day what are the things that i you know i don't want to develop this habit of always getting into this specific position because it's going to make it harder to complete the lift and then if you're trying to focus on hypertrophy okay well what muscle are you intending to grow or like you know because i mean i'm sure i go in the gym and sometimes i do stuff and i'm like somebody's gonna think this looks really weird but i specifically know like that i'm trying to target this very specific spot right. um because that's where I want it to grow. So it's like, well, this is the best angle of pull to be able to grow that specific area. Um, so yeah, those are things that we're focusing on more, more of that than we are like, Oh, if I don't do that, then I'm going to hurt myself every time. Yeah. And actually in terms of, cause we talked about the back, but another one, I guess, um, and I don't know, I think there might be some evolving talk around this in terms of I'm seeing some people who are kind of expert in biomechanics talking about scapular position on mm. maybe rowing and also on like bench pressing. And I think a lot of the advice maybe has come from like generally the advice is to retract and depress maybe on like a bench press. Uh, and now it's coming out that maybe people are discussing having freedom in the scapula and pressing movements and then similarly in pulling movements kind of what's your from a kind of physio perspective what's the what are you cueing what do you think's the kind of best practice for those sort of movements um i mean that's for like a bench that's usually what i cue just because of the effect on there's some thought that off of a stable base that it's yep. a little bit easier to um to press off of um i think that's a little bit true um i don't know as much uh, like i haven't studied that specifically recently um i don't think it would lead to like any problems with injury or anything but i just know that generally if you're uh stable at the the base it's much easier to press from um so i mean i tell people to keep back but i guess you don't have to be like do I have to pull maximally back like while you're bench pressing, like as if you were going to do like a row, like yeah. you were doing a row at the exact same time. Is that a case? Do you, is it safe for the shoulders? I think it's part of a kind of also stability, but also safety was kind of often the thought of retracting during a press. Is that, is it as the bars coming down kind of, are we uh, in a safer position by retracting? Do you think, or? I, I'm per, I don't know. I don't think it really makes as much of a difference. I think they're okay. probably thinking about like that impingement <clears throat> area and like not reducing space. There's a, there's a specific area underneath your collarbone, like here in the front of your shoulder, mm -hmm. where there's a one of our rotator cuff muscles, and it has a finite amount of space. But the problem is also is that that when you normally move your arm, even start to lift it like to the side, just like barely, like if you were going to reach for like a at a coffee table or anything, like you're already starting to compress that muscle there. So it undergoes normal compression throughout our daily life and movements. Um, and, and I don't see where it, there would be the, maybe what they're thinking about too, now that you're mentioning it can do in my current studying for this exam that I have tomorrow is that there's this phenomena they've observed in cadavers called a ringing out effect where it kind of like this that they described it as like wringing out a towel of one mm -hmm. of the muscles when you're in a specific position but again they have to look at that that was done in cadaver studies and that may not be applicable to living humans mm -hmm. yeah fantastic and then similarly in um pulling movements what are your kind of are you allowing the, the scapula to move there or are you kind of retracting it, do you think, before kind of producing like a, 
like retracting it back or depressing it rather before doing a pull-up or do you have any are you thinking about it to that level when you're exercising during pulling movements um i mean the way that i think of it is because i've looked at a different number of people and 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 worked with a few different people because before i worked with 3dm or with uh Trank guys, I was actually a, a client of Alberto Nunez. So we had cool. discussions about things like that. And I've always listened to some of their things. <clears throat> and I mean, and Mike uh, is Rattel. And we can think about too, is like, if you're trying to use those movements for hypertrophy, and we think about the muscle, um, like insertions and things like that, there's going to be some of them in our back that we're going to try and be growing through a rowing or a pulling movement that if you don't allow the scapula to kind of move away, like into protraction away from your, you know, being pressed together or um, allowing them to rotate up, you may not be achieving the maximal amount of like range of motion. And then you're kind of short changing a little bit of volume um, during those specific movements. You're going to be ultimately stronger if you're kind of in a flatter, flatter back position or not like using your hips to compensate, but yeah. you can get a little bit free as long as it's not like you're like jerking yeah, okay. around, like you're trying to start a lawnmower or something like that. Absolutely. I guess the same would apply to retracting. You're kind of shortening the muscle to its fullest extent. So you're getting that extra range of motion. Yeah, exactly. And then I don't know if this is um, something that you're familiar as, with as well, Jacob, is um, active range of motion for muscles versus like a passive range of motion. So um, you think about like some people come very, you mentioned Mike Isretel, he comes very deep on his leg press. And probably part of that is because the load is pushing him into passive range of motion. Whereas if he came to his active range, it might be, I don't know, a number of inches less deep than that. Is that what's your um, from a physio perspective and like safety perspective? Do you and maybe even a hypertrophy perspective? What's your kind of thinking behind active and passive range of motion? Is that something you differentiate between or think about when you're training? Um, yeah, um, I don't think about it more when I'm training. More of like I look at like when I'm if I'm measuring specific joint angles with a patient. Um, I think some of the differences we can see when we're training can be definitely like. Um, nervous system adaptation because like the way that I describe it may not even be the best way to describe it, but it's like, think of a suspension in your car, like, um, like a batter suspension in a car, like maybe depending on what you're, you know, carrying or things like that, maybe like a stiffer spring. Like if I'm, if I have a truck and I want to carry, you know, a maximal amount of weight in the, in the back of it, I want a very stiff spring because it's going to allow for some compression and give, um, and it's going to take that amount of weight to compress that. So it's the same thing, maybe similar when like, I can't, uh, achieve like squat depth or like a great deadlift position. If I don't have some kind of weight on my back or on the floor to be pulling from. Yeah. And I think part of that is you're going to see a, an adaptation in your nervous system is going to say, Hey, like I'm normally used to lifting these kind of loads. So I need to increase the tone here um so that that needs to be stiffer like spring so to speak um to generate more force so we'll see like um weightlifters anyone that lifts may have like what are perceived to be tighter hamstrings and it may not be that the length is shortened it may be that because you're specifically asking that muscle to always exhibit a strength characteristic like it's naturally developed more of a of a tone and you can get it to relax like i can't touch my toes if i just try and reach down um, but if i were to work at it i can gradually get down there um so there may be something like that that we're seeing uh more so so you can get into these positions when you're under loads more than um <clears throat> when you're just like at a lighter weight or things like that Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. Yeah, I guess um, from what I've seen, 
and I don't know enough about the subject to talk about it deeply, but active is kind of the range that you have control over and that the muscles will allow you to get into. And I guess if you were to limit yourself to active, you might eventually, like you said, be able to improve that range as you kind of use it more and more and you might get deeper and deeper. Uh, do you think that's something you should limit yourself to and that that would should be your full range like when you think about full range of motion is that full range or mm-hmm. is getting into some passive range full range for you i consider like getting into some passive range still like full range because it may it can be per- deceiving as to what your active is right. um especially once you start like lifting you may be getting into a, a period where oh now i have more motion and i can control that um I mean, because as long as you can press out of that position and things like that, um, and you're not like safety wise getting like pinned by a weight or something like that in a position that's unsafe and you can't control it because of like, you know, a bench press falling on you or like a squat pushing you into the floor or things like that. Um, it's perfectly fine because I, I mean, I see that with my patients too. It's like they maybe come in and, and we're in like a, or a phase of their recovery where they're like, I'm returning them to full activity and and they may not be able to achieve certain motions until they've like done a few things and then, Oh, okay. Now this motion's better. And that's not necessarily, um, a sign, you know, and there's some to hypertrophy for this. I remember a while back when it was like the barbell one podcast was still going every day. Um, he was discussing the difference between, um, hypertrophy with, specific movements like uh, RDLs and like uh, glute ham raises and things like that. And there's some to that, like having to learn to control through the, these passive motions and getting in these positions of stretch that we may not normally get into appears to have some benefits on hypertrophy of a muscle too. That stretch under load um, type of dynamic. Yeah. I've, I've seen similar things. So no, that's, that's really interesting. I guess, if I was to summarize it, you suggest maybe for a trainee, full range of motion for them would be the range that they can control safely with the musculature mm-hmm. that they're trying to use. And that could lead into passive range still. Yeah. 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 Cool. Um, awesome. So something I wanted to pick you up on actually was uh, one of your memes uh, was really, uh, it was funny. It was one of those, um, I can't remember what it was. It was like the guy drinking coffee and he had his billboard in front of him and like, try and disagree with me. Tell me I'm wrong. And it was to do with um, ab training, not impacting the way your abs will look um, and talking about how doing more there is potentially unnecessary volume. So uh, I'd love for you to, yeah, again, what, what are your perceptions on ab training? Can it, can it cause thicker abs or do you feel like it's something that's just essentially unnecessary? Um, I think it could if you're specifically like training for that physique development. Um, I had an interesting discussion actually with one of my uh, like friends after I posted that and I'm like, man, you're going back. Like you remember, you have a good memory Um, because uh, it's one of those things where like I've discussed it with like um, Alberto and like they've talked about it with like 3DMJ and things like that. And it's like, is it something you need to always specifically train? Maybe not. Like you could, you can still obviously make the muscle bigger, but always is that something you want to be achieving? Because in physique, we're thinking about like that taper look, um, you know, the V taper. So, I mean, if you're made theoretically, cause it's such a subjective sport at times, like, would you want to, change the insertion of your oblique or your abdominal to make even this perception that your hips could be potentially wider that could like not ruin on somebody because you'd have to hypertrophy this muscle a lot to ruin a a taper but you know maybe there is somebody like there's some people that could potentially see uh, enough of a difference in their the sharpness of the muscle there um, that maybe get like a fuller look and things like that too. Um, because if you're exercising that muscle, obviously it's going to pull more glycogen and things like that into yeah. it, um, get a pump there and then it's going to look better at a, like for a stage presence. So for physique, I think you could argue like either way. Um, I know most people don't focus on it because to actually like obviously create like 
a six pack and a V taper. There's a matter of losing body fat. And there's, there's something to the fact that, um, even when we do specific movements, there's a lot of other movements that may actually cause a larger activation of our abdominals than actually doing like traditional, like, um, like abdominal exercises, um, can achieve. So like there's some studies that had shown that, um, like doing a push up caused more activation of the rectus abdominis than uh, while you're doing like a crunch or a, a curl up. Um, there's some that show like a deadlift, a squat and uh, kettlebell swings may activate like your obliques and some of the smaller muscles in your lower back as well to a large degree. Um, but I think if it, it's, it's a matter of weighing out, like does this have a place in their total volume and what they're able to recover from? And, um, and the, the client's like desire and, and need to like train that. Cause if you're doing like things for health and you can get them to enjoy a workout more by like, okay, I'll throw in a couple ab exercises. Cause I know you're going to like that. Um, you know, that can go a long way too to compliance and adherence to their, their training program for long-term benefit. Yeah, it's certainly, I, I think, yeah, when, if we were to take that meme at face value, it'd sound like you were completely saying never train your abs, but having talked through with you, it's very much a case of like case specific. And I would agree yeah. a lot of people are better off spending their time on other things and recovering from other things than necessarily worrying too much about their abs because uh, it's something I've taken a lot of time to focus on in the last few years because I, I do not have good abdominal development. And uh, if they have grown, when I think they maybe have, it's very much a small to a small extent and i can uh what's it called i can prioritize my time to allow me to do that whereas if i was giving this to everyone they would hate me probably because the, it's yeah. ab training like you said you may add it because it might make people feel better um it also i end up removing it because people hate training their abs um and i i'm certainly one of those people as well so yeah really good discussion on that yeah, and unless you're like, um, unless you're an enhanced lifter, you're not gonna have to worry about like your gut really getting yeah. too big. And that's for different reasons, anyways. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, actually, to finish up, Jacob, I think this has been a fantastic chat, and you've really kind of brought out some points that are very, very interesting. And I think for a lot of the listeners, will have allowed them to feel more confident and comfortable within the gym and what they're doing in terms of various things and yeah hopefully getting the best out of their physio or their gp as well yeah uh, in regards to like physique training in particular are there any common myths or like misconceptions that you see out there that a lot of people end up believing or doing that frustrate you or you'd like to just like squash that we haven't <laughs> spoken about i guess <laughs> A lot of them are just common ones that we see all over the place, like this misunderstanding of like what what you need to do to achieve like specific like uh, physique and fat loss goals and and things like that. Like the whole um, you know with the kind of revolution of like if it fits your macros and and all these other uh, things that I think that have been good trends in fitness, we're starting to see some of these things improve. But like still a lot of people have these outdated beliefs of like, oh, I got to do cardio all the time and I have to eat this very like bland specific diet or now the big one is like keto and stuff like right. that. Um, so I think it's like just in general, like the thing is, is like the people that need to hear that you need to go out and resistance train are probably not listening to your podcast mm -hmm. to begin with. Very um, true. Because that's a big thing that I see is that like people want to achieve these specific goals, but then <clears throat> aren't necessarily uh, doing productive things towards like things that are going to increase your you know base metabolic rate and um, achieve like that quote unquote the, all the time I always hear about like oh I just I want to look tone or I want to get tone so I don't I don't want to lift heavy weights or like lift. Uh, lift weights so it's like mm -hmm. kind of those like common ones that we all hear once you become a gym goer that you just kind of roll your eyes at yeah i guess actually from a i don't know if these are good examples but i'm going to try two for you um that i hear that are kind of more so physio 
maybe specific in terms of maybe inactive glutes and then like tight hamstrings. These are ones I hear a lot and I don't know if they're myths or misconceptions, um, particularly tight hamstrings, like hear that all the time. Yeah, I think those are like misconceptions, like the whole idea of like glute amnesia. I think at one, a couple studies, they may have found that like that people just appeared to have less activation when they were in pain of their uh, glute muscles. So then all of a sudden it became this whole thing of like, oh, so we got to have everybody do bridges and clamshells and uh, abductions and, and different things like that. And I think it's more of a, they were in pain. So obviously it was harder to contract a lot of musculature around their, their back. Um, and because especially the glute, glute max has its, origin at the upper portion of our our hip muscle or our hip bone so that's actually right where the tie-in to the to the lumbar fascia is where the um lat starts it's well yeah it starts its origin so we always got to think is that when we go over anatomy it's always either the the area that's the highest on the body or is closest to the midline is what would be its origin and then the insertion is the furthest away either um, away from the body midline or to the lowest portion. Um, so those tie in together. So it, it makes sense that like you would have that. And then for hamstring length, it's either, you know, it gets back to that neurological adaptation. Is it, well, your hamstring is actually tight or is it developed this adaptation? Because I've specifically asked it to, you know, I've asked it to deadlift twice my body weight on a regular basis or, um, if somebody's having back pain, you can also notice that, okay, well, with your hamstring muscles, they attach to your pelvis, which affects your lower back position, as well as your the nerve that comes out of your back and goes down your leg runs with your hamstring. And in most people, it's actually about the size of your index finger. Um, and our nerves become very sensitized when we're in pain uh, because it's like the um, the quote that I like that I heard that I, I often say to people is like nerves are really easy to piss off and it's hard to get them to quiet down again once they're pissed off. Um, so you may not damage the nerve, but you're going to, when you're trying to stretch your hamstring, you're also lengthening that nerve. And if it's already right. pissed off because your back is sore, then that's going to be perceived as the tightness as well as if you're having any soreness or anything there, um, this is if somebody's in pain specifically, those muscles are going to try and help to guard the position that your lumbar spine is in and prevent you from rotating your hips too far forwardly or backwards. So it's going to splint you kind of like if I had a rock in my shoe, I'm going to limp. Right. So it's kind of, yeah, definitely misconceptions in that people perceive the the issue to be something that it necessarily isn't. It's kind of like the body is, has all these links and chains and you're kind of this is why i guess someone like yourself has a job so you can get yeah. people to correct it in the right way so uh, jacob i want to say a massive thank you again for coming on having this chat with me i think it's like i said been really interesting um i want to make sure if people want to i don't know uh, seek help from you or um, obviously check out your instagram where should people head um so i have an instagram obviously strength and evidence physio that's where i'm going to be the most active uh, more often, um, I have a LinkedIn for people that want to like maybe connect otherwise, like I'm Jacob H. Templar in there because I generally have been trying not to have people on my Facebook because um, I kind of end up keeping that as like a private because I'll go over like politics and um, post stuff about my daughter and stuff that I don't necessarily want everybody to see. Um I think I just have those are my main ones right now <clears throat> and then I just started doing a research review that I'm launching at the end of this month actually uh, I've been talking about it on my Instagram so if you're interested at all in that you can check that out there too awesome thank you so much Jacob and we'll catch everyone soon take care thanks for having me So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flohr. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course.
The Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is gonna be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. It's also gonna be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.